This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Greg Bench, Trey Whetstone, Amy Swan, Gilman, Joel Robertson, and ooh, Blake from Midweek Matinee. Thank you all. Now on to the episode. Welcome to episode 54 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Jackson the Sun, and to quote Brad Pitt, Arriva Derchi, because we're <laughs> finally once again talking about the certified Italian horror cinema. Oh, man. Yes, we are, and we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss, and on this episode, we begin a tribute to the great Italian filmmaker, who, by the time this first episode drops, will turn 80 years Young, Are you excited to discuss Mr. Argento for a few weeks? I have never been more excited for a series on this podcast in my life. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, Dario Argento, he was born September 7th, 1940 in Rome to a filmmaking family. He began his career as a film critic, then as a screenwriter. He collaborated on Sergio Leone's great Once Upon a Time in the West in 1968, before graduating to directing in 1970 with the Giallo, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And today we are discussing his second movie from 1971, The Cat of Nine Tales, which is currently streaming on Shudder. The masters of tension who gave you The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, the picture that outpsychoed Psycho, have now made a film nine times more suspenseful. Cat of Nine Tales. Cat to Nine Tales. It's nine times more suspenseful than the bird with the crystal plumage. Rated GP. So, buddy, when did you first see the Cat of Nine Tales? Today. Oh, really? Yep, this was my first time watching this, and I don't think it's discussed that much. Honestly, uh, when you hear about Argento, obviously you hear about, like, Deep Red or whatever, Suspiria. Suspiria. Um, but this one I didn't know about, and I feel like that's because these more vanilla giallos that are just about crime rather than anything supernatural, they're not talked about as much because they're not as exciting to horror uh, viewers. Uh, but I thought this was a fantastic movie and one that is severely underrated uh, and under-discussed. And one of my favorite parts, which grabbed me right away, I don't mean to, to jump right in, but, but Go I got to talk about it. The great soundtrack uh, by the great late ah. Ennio Morricone. You know, I love it. It kind of sounds like a Western, which isn't surprising coming from the composer. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought it was great. And there is one part I want to talk about with you later uh, that really grabbed me and was the standout feature of this movie for me. All righty. Well, I first saw this on VHS uh, back when I lived in L.A., um, I think that the only Argento movie that was available to me growing up in Ohio was Suspiria and maybe Phenomena. That I think that's it. And I'd read a lot about Argento and Fangoria, but living in a small town with only two mom-and-pop video stores that didn't have a real deep library, it, it was until I got to L.A., and then I think I spent like two months just like every Sunday, because Sunday mornings is typically when I watched VHS. On Sunday morning, I think I just would for two months watch nothing but Argento movies to catch up. And this is when I first saw this one. So if you haven't seen it, uh, it is on Shutter and Amazon Prime. And the IMDb synopsis reads, a newspaper reporter and a retired blind journalist 
try to solve a series of killings connected to a pharmaceutical company's experimental mm. top secret research project. And in doing so, both become targets of the killer. Um, everything good there except, was it a pharmaceutical company? Or no, was it, a it wasn't. I feel like they got the wrong translation of this movie uh, because they were not selling anything. It was a, gen a genetic research facility. Right. Uh, but yeah, pretty, pretty good. Uh, not the worst IMDb synopsis we've ever had. And it seems like they have, in fact, seen the movie. Maybe years before they wrote this, but yeah. Sure. Um, it's basically, as Jackson said, a genetic lab is broken into. No one can find anything missing. Uh, the head of the company wants to just hush it up, but a series of murders follow the break-in, and a blind puzzle maker uh, who and a former reporter, Franco, played by the great Carl Malden, and he is great, but I'm not sure what he's doing in Italy, um, is convinced that they are connected and convinced uh, uh, convinces another reporter played by James Franciscus Carlo and that something's going on and they go on the hunt. It is a pretty conventional early giallo, but let me ask you, what did you think of the plot and the screenplay for this one? Uh, as far as the plot goes, there were some parts, and we are a spoiler podcast, near the end that were kind of leaps in logic for me. But what in an Argento movie? <laughs> yeah, well, the the dialogue. I'll, I will say this: the dialogue was incredible. I thought. I, I mean, even though the delivery was a little weird because it was dubbed into Italian, even though the actors weren't speaking Italian, uh, I still thought the dialogue was great, and even occasional moments of great acting shown through. Uh, despite the shortcomings of the dub, like I said. And that's the problem that a lot of these old, older giallos had, is that they would film them in whatever language that the actors uh, decided to speak in, and then they would dub it to Italian, and then they would dub it to English, which is a very bad way of making a movie. Uh, yep. But what can you do? It was the early 70s. The screenplay, in essence, to sum up my opinion, really good. Not Argento's best uh, work translated to screen, but... Um, I do think it was pretty solid. It is a bit like a lot of his movies, though. Um, and if you're listening to this, you're an Argento fan. This isn't going to shock you. A bit convoluted. At times, a bit hard to follow. Oh, yeah. There's layers and layers to this thing. And uh, the, the way that the layers are connected is tenuous at best. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you get a lot of characters you're introduced to for like 15 seconds and then they have something important to say. And, of course, you know in a giallo that if you're introduced to somebody for just 15 seconds and they have something important to say, it's like, was it the red shirts in the original Star Trek? They're dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. If they've got something in like important to contribute and you don't want them around by the climax of the movie, you got to kill them off in some way. And that that actually, uh, if when we talk about my pros and cons with the movie, that is actually something that uh, I thought was a shortcoming of this film. Would you be shocked to learn that this is one of Mr. Argento's least favorite movies he's made? I would be shocked to learn that. And mm -hmm. do you mean directing or just like involved at all? Because there are some that he was just like loosely involved with that were real stinkers. But as far as as far as his directing work goes, this isn't bad. Yeah, as far as directing, he thinks this is one of his least favorite. Okay. Uh, now, we, I haven't visited the rest of his work uh, recently, at least. I'm looking forward to doing that with the series. But to me, this was a really solid movie. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's motivated partly because we tend to think of auteurs 
like Argento, and we talked about this with Kubrick, that they don't care about box office. They're concerned about, you know, making art. Uh, mm. That's a lot of hooey. Um, you know, John Landis has said that both Argento and Kubrick are very, very concerned about uh, box office. And this movie, it did well in America for what it is. It did n- it did very poorly in Europe. Yeah, that surprises me, though. It may have something to do with the fact that there were a lot of Americans on the cast. Do you think that contributed? I, I don't know. I think it was more you put it. I think it was for its time. I mean, first of all, it's following Bird with Crystal Plumage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, you've got Giallo's really beginning start to push the envelope. I don't think this one pushed it as much. And mm-hmm. so I think maybe it was a little, as you said, a little too vanilla for European audiences at that time for Giallo, perhaps. Because this was the same year, I believe, as Bay of Blood. Oh, yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, my first instinct was just that we have so many Americans on the cast, but then I thought about the fact that uh, Italians were very well-versed in international uh, films, and, and they, they, they didn't mind an American cast, so that, that really wouldn't affect it, though it does make sense. Yeah, this is very cut-and-dry, just straight crime mystery. There's no supernatural aspects to it. It's not really pushing the boundaries as far as content. Uh, there is some some graphic stuff in it, though it's it's mostly implied. I would say there's some child endangerment, right. uh, but but not a lot seen on screen. So it definitely didn't push the envelope a lot. I just think this is a a good example of what a classic giallo should be. Okay, fair fair enough. It, look, it it keeps. This is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. It's kept my attention every time I've watched it. Um, I will say also that in retrospect, maybe one of the reasons why this doesn't get discussed as much as Argento's other movies. We'll talk about the cinematography here in a minute, but Argento is primarily known as a visual filmmaker. And this cinematography, I'll go ahead and say it's fine, but it's not going to blow you away. It's not a deep red or a Suspiria. Mm -hmm. But there are hints of what Argento movies would become. Uh, I, especially the use of color. There are quite a few times where it's drab and it's just grays, but then there are standout features, uh, parts of the movie where it features color really well. And I'll talk about those later. But uh, yeah, this is not as eye-catching as, as Deep Red or certainly not Suspiria. Uh, it just plays out like your normal average 70s movie. It's not going to, to blow you away. But I don't think it needs to. Uh, I, I think the the plot and the mystery that unfolds is, is gripping enough to to get you in the seat and keep you there. I don't think it needs to rely on flashy camera tricks or lighting or, or set design. Right, right. So anything else you want to talk about the plot or screenplay before we move on to the cast? Not really. Maybe as we as we unload on the cast, I'll, I'll think of something, but but sure. I don't have anything for now. Sure. So we mentioned uh, Carl Malden is in this great great actor a guy who lived to be 97 years old uh he was born in 1912 and he just died a little over 10 years ago um i think he's always magnificent i mean look at his filmography on the waterfront gypsy Patton. he won an oscar for best supporting actor for a streetcar named desire um you know he's just so great at playing the everyman I think that he is absolutely magnificent in this role. I think he's somebody that you like immediately. 
I agree, definitely. And uh, his relationship with, I guess, is it his granddaughter or maybe his niece? They, you know what? I mean, IMBB, I think, listed as his niece, but I don't mm-hmm. think he ever says. He just says mm-hmm. he has that quick back and forth um, with Carlo where he's like, well, I don't have any family. She doesn't have any family, so we just kind of need each other. And I remember the first couple times watching that going, did you just pick up an orphan on the street? I mean, what what's yeah. going on here, dude? I mean, but it, it, I may have missed it, it because it does say in like Wikipedia and so forth that it's his niece. Yeah, that was I thought it was his niece as well. But then I thought about it. He seems a little old to be her her uh, uncle. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just a technicality. But yeah, definitely, he's amazing in this role. His relationship with his niece or his, or his granddaughter or whatever is very wholesome, and I, I loved that. Uh, they kind of take care of each other. Um, he he tells her what to do, but she adds a lot of insight. I feel like she's kind of uh, very witty for her age, mm-hmm. um, and you can tell that she got that from him. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think he's got a really interesting character. The thing that immediately, like, really grabbed me about his character is what you were talking about, the whole puzzle-making thing. He has this crossword puzzle that's 3D because he's blind. Right. And that looked like the coolest thing ever. It's like if you made crossword <laughs> puzzles a board game. I really want one of those now, and I'm not even blind. Uh, but, yeah, I thought he was a very interesting guy. His backstory is great, and, yeah, he really sells a role. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just think he's a terrific actor, but uh, the the there are a couple of things that with his character that I think we can talk about that are a little odd. Like uh, when they're in the uh, graveyard, when they're in the crypt, uh, were you uh, as surprised as I was to learn that uh, Cookie has a switchblade cane? <laughs> yes, I was very surprised. I I see. I didn't even recognize that was the same cane as usual until it switched back up into his thing, and I was like. Oh, he just takes it around with him, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I, and and then I thought about it. I was like, okay, maybe he's used to being mugged or something, and he's got to have defense with him. Uh, but he seems very comfortable with using that thing offensively. <laughs> uh, so something tells me that back when he was a reporter, he used that thing to get some some stories out of people. Man, uh, oh man. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. But it, that shocked me. The other thing you know, you brought up. Uh, the little girl played Lori, and I'm not, and she's Italian. I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name. Um, but, and she didn't go on to do a whole lot after this. I just thought it was strange. Do you remember the scene where, and we'll talk about Carlo James uh, Franciscus here in a minute, but do you remember the scene where they go see the uh, photographer and he discovers that his photographer friend has been murdered and Carlo comes down and is speaking to Carl Malden. Oh, it's terrible. He's all cut up. And the little girl sitting on his lap, just acting like, eh, this happens with Cookie. What are you going to do? Yeah, that that did throw me off. Another thing that that really uh, surprised me about that scene is that the killer walks out and uh, right beside the car where Lori and uh, and what wait, what is his name? Arno, I guess is what his name is, uh, are. So they've seen him exiting the crime scene, but apparently Lori didn't didn't care to mention that or even bring that up when she was abducted by him. Uh, but <laughs> but whatever. Anyways, yeah, that was a very strange scene. Uh, yeah, Carlo or Giordani. Everybody insists on calling him by his last name. I don't know if that's just a respect thing, but uh, 
uh, yeah, he is very comfortable with talking about a violent crime scene in front of what I assume to be like a nine or ten year old girl. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I loved that scene though. If we're gonna talk about that scene with the the photographer, yeah. uh, I thought that was fantastic, and that is one of the few scenes where I thought lighting and color was on full display uh, with that guy's green room. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that that is one of the better scenes. There's a another kill we can talk about uh, in a minute. Uh, the woman whose fiance was killed later. I thought that was, you know, pretty well done. But let's talk about James Franciscus as the reporter, uh, Carlo. Who, by the way, James Franciscus, not Italian. Um, yep. Yeah, and you want to know the way I discovered that? How's that? I was like, he kind of reminds me of Charlton Heston. And then I looked him up, and to my surprise, he was in the sequel to Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which, side note, I remember watching with you one time. Do you remember that that day? Uh, We watched Uh, all of the Planet of the Apes together, all the original, like the original five we watched together. Yeah, he was Brent. Yep, I remember. And I think that I honestly think that's why I thought he looked. So the studio was like, okay, Charlton Heston doesn't want to be in the bulk of this movie. Okay, let's let's just get somebody who looks like Charlton Heston. So that's why I thought he kind of looked like him. Uh, Yeah, honestly, I think he's really good in this role. Uh, He's not like he doesn't have a a bunch of standout, hugely dramatic scenes, but he's pretty good as the investigative kind of leading man. And once a certain character is uh, introduced, uh, I don't know if we want to talk about it um, him yet, but his name is Gigi the Loser. Uh, yeah, oh, we got to talk about Gigi the Loser, yeah. I thought their relationship was great, and uh, them bouncing off each other made me love Carlo even more. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so James Franciscus, if you don't know him, and unless you've seen Beneath the Planet of the Apes, you may not. He did do a Jaws ripoff later on, but... This is despite the fact this guy was a Yale graduate uh, from Missouri. Uh, he would go into producing later in life, though he died fairly young. He died in the 1990s from emphysema, uh, despite being a, a uh, semi-professional tennis player and everything. So that's that's a shame and a bummer. But yeah, I like his character a lot. I thought he's fine. It's a little weird for a Italian uh, journalist to only drink milk, but okay. Yeah, that was a lot. I I can't wait to talk to you about the milk pyramids, but uh, those little cardboard milk pyramids really threw me off. Yeah, it is it is quite odd that he drinks milk and that he's so comfortable just picking milk from the outside of his door and drinking it right away. I'd be like, I I want to refrigerate that, uh, but nope, he's just, he's just taking it right off the right off the ground. Uh, yeah, he's a very odd character in that he's obviously American. Uh, but he's playing this this Italian reporter, even though you can read his lips and he's not speaking Italian. No, he's not. It, it just looks like it's slightly off, like the uh, sync for the audio is slightly off when he's talking. But uh, let's just go ahead and talk about that before we talk. about. I, I want to bring up, you know, one or two other cast members, but let's talk about this. All right. I I'm not even old enough to remember. I was born a year after this came out, 72. I'm not old enough to remember Milkman delivering milk or cheese or whatever mm-hmm. like they used to do. Uh, I know my mom has spoken about, you know, um, that having happened, you know, to her when she lived, like when she was in graduate school in Indiana and stuff, they had a Milkman because she already had straight A's and she had a test and she'd already filled it out. But the professor, for some reason, never wanted you to quit working. So she goes on after she's filled out her essay. She goes on and and tells this story about Omar, the milkman. 
Mm-hmm. And then, for whatever reason, she was accused of cheating. And she was like, that can't be. I didn't cheat. And, and she says, well, this, this girl who was sitting by you, her answers are exactly the same. And, and she goes, did she write down Omar the milkman? And he said, yes, she did. She said, well, would you like to go to my hometown, which is 30 miles away, and that's my milkman, Omar? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to meet Omar? And they found out, no, the other woman was cheating. Why she wrote down the story about Omar the milkman, I don't know. But, but that was before my time. But I've never heard of a milkman dropping off, like, those single teeny tiny things like they yeah. use in, like, lunch rooms. Yeah, they're little cardboard pyramids. And I was about to ask you, I, in my notes while I was watching it, I wrote, was milk delivered in little cardboard pyramids in the 70s, or was that just an Italian thing? Because, yeah, those Not look like... I remember. Those look like things that, yeah, you would get in a cafeteria. They're like single-serve little milk cartons. Nobody would pay money to get those. I do not understand why uh, that, that was so acceptable for them to put it in. Like, yeah, everybody would get this. Um, and why you would immediately just be like, yeah, I trust this. These, these, yeah, these come every single day. So obviously this is a tradition for them. I was kind of dumbfounded by that. Just having food delivered to your door every day is kind of a, a, a foreign concept to me. I know this used to happen with milk and ice as well. Um, it's but, become more common now, buddy, thanks to the pandemic. I, that is true. That is true. Uh, but I, I've never had that happen to me. I, I guess, yeah, I'm just not used to that culture. Now, that I don't know if you want to talk about why uh, that's important, that he got cardboard milk pyramids. Um, but that scene with the, with the milk and, I guess, the poison uh, was very tense for me. And I can't say that a lot with movies and milk-related scenes. Uh, <laughs> so I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. 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 It was a good scene. Um, but yeah, the, the, that pyramid thing threw me off as well. And I remember I first watched this in like 88, 89. And even then I was like, wait a minute, what, what is that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a little strange. Um, the, the scene, I mean, it seems weird to poison a guy's milk anyway, but I, but so be it. And it, because you can see it leaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right? it's blue. Wasn't it blue on the table? Did you notice that? I did not notice that. I did not okay. see if it was blue. Okay. Well, I, it I, looked it looked kind of like Luke Skywalker blue milk pulling out on the table. <laughs> uh, it, it was pretty odd. And yeah, why would you inject it into the milk when you're going to have a hole in it? So it's just going to be slowly leaking milk. It seems like a very bad idea. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess that was his only thing. option because the guy didn't drink liquor. So I don't know. But mm -hmm. um, <laughs> So we've got Catherine Spock. Mm -hmm. I guess that's how you pronounce her name, S-P-A-A-K, who plays Anna Terzi. Uh, she was a singer who was popular in, in Europe and did Italian movies between the late 60s and early 80s. Um, thoughts about um, her as a <clears throat> red herring? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, she's something. Uh, you know, I liked her when the movie started. I was like, okay, I love the scene when she's trying to outrun the cops. She's doing that whole car chase thing, mm -hmm. uh, which, and there's another thing that is very far gone from our culture now. This must have been an early 70s thing. Uh, the, the lead character, Carlo, remarks that there aren't any seatbelts in Anna's car. Right. Which is something that I don't think has happened for the past 50 years. Um, but apparently Anna's car did not have seatbelts in it. 
Uh, and by the way, I love that theme with the car chase. It kind of reminded me of uh, the Born Identity, and I was mm-hmm. wondering if maybe it took some uh, some influence from that. It also kind of reminded me of Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, but that's another matter. Um, you mean the Born movie stole from Cat of Nine Tails? You think? Maybe you never know. Okay. Uh, you never know, but. Yeah, I, I like her character in the beginning, but as it went on, it felt more and more like she was just being set up to be an obvious red herring. She just appears in places randomly, and people look at her suspiciously. Uh, and by the end, I didn't think she was a very successful red herring, because uh, she obviously didn't do it. I mean, come on. she would. I don't think uh, Argento was seriously entertaining the thought that uh, this— very, very scrawny woman could have strangled all these men to death. Uh, but right. he set her up as a red herring. So what do I know? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, before we leave the cast, I mean, we can talk about the killer, but there's really not much there, mm-hmm. um, which is not unlike a lot of um, giallos. But the let's talk about the loser. We got to talk about the loser. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Gigi the Loser. Gigi the Loser. Played by, ooh, I can't even say that. Uh, <laughs> I probably can't either. He was fantastic. Now, he's introduced, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie, and somehow he totally steals the show. Uh, I think he's great. Oh, he does, yeah. He was introduced in the perfect way, okay? So we open on a scene, we have no idea what's going on, and Gigi the Loser is spouting off insult after insult, and the insult tirade ends with the word turd. Uh, which I thought was fantastic. And apparently, people are betting on who can do the most insults in a row without stopping, uh, which is a very strange, like, underground sport. I didn't know this existed. Uh, but, but, I mean, Italy in the 70s was a totally different time. Uh, and so uh, Carlo needs somebody who can break into a house, and he knows that, uh, that Gigi has done some time in the past, that he's, uh, he's, he's gotten into some criminal activity. But once Gigi comes into the picture, I think Carlo really needed somebody to bounce off of. And once he had that, I liked the both of them infinitely more. I mean, he is both absolutely bonkers and way more sane than Carlo, uh, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. And I love that he's just got the jacket full of lockpicks and and uh, screwdrivers and keys and whatnot. Like, that's not suspicious at all. You're walking down the street, and it's just jingling, jangling. I Like, nobody's going to stop you and ask about that. Uh, but yeah, Gigi the Loser, great small role in a horror movie. One that we probably should have talked about on, in our uh, our bonus pod on Patreon. But uh, uh, I agree. If we had talked about this beforehand, I would remember Gigi the Loser. So I'm going to go ahead and give his name a shot. Ugo Fangareggi. Not, I don't think that's bad. Honestly, I do not think Italian people will be offended by that. Uh, he but. died three years ago at the age of 79. Um, but I'm I, as intrigued as I was, I'm looking over some of his other IMDb credits. And uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be looking these up. Yeah, for, no, for... not much. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, no, these these no. movies do not look sometimes um, adult fair. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, he had the mustache for it. Okay. Anyways, uh, moving on. Yeah. Uh, that was the cast. That was the cast. So, all righty. So, but I, I want to say this. I mean, and it's hard to say with the bad dubbing, but let's face it. Argento has never been known as an actor's director. He's there for the scene. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's more of a technical director, and I think everybody can can agree on that. Yeah. And so... I, I I think that 
the thing is, like I said, I think Argento fans going into this will be, if they're looking for these spectacular color palettes in every scene, like in Suspiria, I think they'll be disappointed. And that may be why Argento looks back on it, along with it not, you know, doing a lot of bank in Europe as one of his favorite movies. But it's not badly shot, I don't think. No, not at all. It's above average. In fact, I would say, I mean, it took me uh, covering five episodes with a Fulci to really appreciate Argento. Because (laughs) even the the most lacking Argento films uh, are infinitely better, technically, than Fulci. And I love Fulci. uh, But, wow. Although, I will say that this movie reminds me the most, out of Fulci's uh, whole catalog, of Don't Torture a Duckling. I actually Mm -hmm. think the tone of this with the murders and the and the true the true crime kind of uh, feel to it, it reminds me a lot of Don't Torture a Duckling, especially with how the killer is finally revealed, and that we see the killer, he's not suspicious, and then at the end they're like, "Well, he's the killer," and you're like, "Okay, I guess so." Right, and we might as well talk about that plot point. This is pretty bonkers, and this was based apparently on a novel or a short story. I can't remember, but this is pretty bonkers and. Uh, first of all, that you know, it's dealing with um, genetics, um, folks. You know, if you let your teenagers watch this movie, don't let them put this on a biology exam. Um, that there supposedly was it an XXY chromosome? Yeah, uh, X, yeah, XYY or XXY. Now, interestingly, I did look up the science behind this XYY chromosome theory they presented, okay. and apparently, there is some truth to it. Uh, interestingly enough, what? Now, most, <laughs> most people with XYY syndrome are totally normal. Like it doesn't present any syndrome, any, any symptoms, I mean, of the syndrome. Okay. Uh, but some present with some notable outward symptoms and some even display behavioral symptoms. Apparently famous, uh, serial killer Richard Speck had XYY syndrome. Uh, and, uh, I feel like that incident may have influenced this movie's plot. I have never heard that before in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took me looking it up to, to find that out. Apparently, uh, it's not researched anymore. It was researched in the U.S. back in the 70s, which is what they're referencing. Uh, you know, you have that scene with Carlo and Anna when they're talking about XYY. But, uh, yeah, it is it is technically rooted in some sort of science, but I wouldn't say that it's as extreme as the movie presents it as. It's just there is technically a higher percentage of people with XYY who are more prone to crime than not. And that may also be because there aren't that many people with XYY, so it's a small sample size. Okay. I still don't think I would encourage you to try to, you know, write a research paper oh, in college on not. it. Oh, definitely not. And don't write on your paper, oh, uh, you, you have to kill. It's an, it's an urge. No, not at all. Um, I Honestly, I do think a lot of that comes down to the sample size. And definitely do not let Argento horror movies from the early 70s <laughs> influence your academics in any way, because I can assure you that your professor is not an Argento fan and will not be understanding. Or Cronenberg or, yeah, on and on and on. So we do have to say, um, if you haven't seen this or you haven't seen a lot of Argento movies, um, the politics of Argento movies are a bit complicated today, especially mm-hmm. in regards to uh, women and the LGBTQ community. So you Definitely. may want to just prepare yourself. 
Yeah, it was a different time, for sure, the 70s. And even back then, some of the things that were presented in 70s cinema uh, aren't even excusable for the time. You can't just say, oh, it was a 70s, so it makes it okay. There were definitely some things that were uh, poorly presented, though I don't think this movie was as bad as it could have been. I do think that Dr. Braun, for example, is that his name? I think it's his name. I think so. He wasn't handled with as much insensitivity as there could have been, judging by the time period. Uh, but it's definitely not an accurate portrayal of LGBTQ. Uh, and I, I don't think that, that this will be accepted today. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, the politics are quite complicated. And, and again, you know, different time, but also not even acceptable for them. Yeah, it's you just kind of have to remember I was... Um... You have to remember the times, folks, and watch it for that. It's um, I remember seeing not too long ago um, the stand-up comedian Jim Jeffries. Yeah. Who I love. And and he was saying that, you know, look, he said the lines of what, you know, is appropriate within the cultural mores, they change. The lines change. He said so. And, you know, and he said, look, I'm. I'm trying to be appropriate to what the lines are now, but you can't judge me by what the lines were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. I mean, we got an email this past in the past week, somebody upset with me because I'd used a term that we used uh, in Hollywood in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, kind of an insider industry term that this person thought was offensive dealing with she thought it just dealt with women. It's not true. It's, it was applied to both men and women, but um, it was a term that uh, we used in Hollywood. And again, I'm not trying to be offensive called a makeup job, which is just, they look better with a filter and a professional makeup artist. And you barely recognize them in, 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 in public um, mm-hmm. or they have, they use lifts or they always like, you know, like somebody like Tom Cruise, who's not really tall is always shot. Exactly. Up, you know, yeah, that's what I was like going to say. It's, all, it's of, that kind of thing, you know, and yeah. I wasn't trying to be offensive and I'm not saying that you should judge people just by the way they the way they look. I mean, for goodness sakes, look at I, I completely agree with um, I listen to the Gilbert Godfrey podcast. I listen to Joe Dante and Josh Olson's podcast. They talk about all the time. You couldn't get movies made today that you got made in the 1970s. One, because of pacing. But two, because look at who like the lead actors are. Dustin yeah. Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino. Now, well, now we look back, those guys are legends. But at that time, they weren't. And today, they'd be supporting characters because casting agents in Hollywood and directors think you have to be have six you know, pack abs and you have to, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's just the way you have to look today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely don't look like leading men from the from the. But no. again, at the '80s and the '70s, the standards for leading men and women were very different. They were very different, and it was quite frankly still based upon, more so anyway, on talent than mm-hmm. it was just on the way you look. And I would rather have that. I'm just using industry terms, and sometimes I'll do it again. I'll use insider terms from the 1980s. The lines have obviously changed a lot since then. Not saying I'm condoning it now or use it now. I'm just talking about back then. So no offense, mm-hmm. men. And listen, listen. I mean, Hollywood people, and even now, uh, but especially back then, 
probably the slimiest people you could ever run across. So they're, the language they used is, is not going to be PC even back then. Oh, no, 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 no. And, and even though with the Me Too movement has, has accomplished a lot and kind of flushing um, you know, some people out that have no business there, they're still there. Um, oh, okay. It's unfortunately Hollywood is like the Hydra. You know, you cut off one head and another ugly head pops up. I mean, that's just the way that works. But so you just have, if you're going to watch horror films in the especially in the 70s, when things started to get gritty and in the 80s, we've talked about this all the time. You're going to have to kind of see it through that time without necessarily affirming that it's right or good. It's just what it was at the time. So mm-hmm. anyway, that being said, I uh, just want to give that warning out and that apology or excuse or whatever it was. But anyway. Um, what else do you want to talk about with Cat of Nine Tails? I do have one scene to comment on, and it's the scene with Carlo and uh, Manuel's former lover who comes in, the informant, as he calls himself. Yeah. Uh, the cinematographer in that scene, I didn't look up who the cinematographer is, but I don't think he was a, no- he was a normal cinematographer, seeing as how this looks very different than most Argento movies. Uh, but he does use in that scene one of my favorite camera tricks of all time, which is the split diopter. Uh, focus effect uh-huh. uh, where you see the the informant as he calls himself and Carlo behind him. I love focus tricks. So that was a very flashy moment for me where I was like, okay, Argento, okay, you know how to work a crew. Um, hmm. But those moments are few and far between. For, for the most part, I feel like the camera work is pretty vanilla. Um, and another, another thing that I, that I, you were talking about the screenplay earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I really thought was kind of dark is that uh, the title was explained, uh, the Cat of Nine Tails, and that there are nine leads. Right. Uh, and that if they can just get a hold of one, that the whole cat will be attached to it, that the, the whole uh, crime will be explained. Uh, and kind of darkly, if you think about it, uh, if each lead is a tail, um, by the movie's own logic, as each lead is eliminated, another tail is, is cut or pulled off the metaphorical cat, which is very Argento, I feel like. Right. There, there's horror even in the metaphysical, even in the metaphorical uh, behind the script, which, which I thought was great. Right. Um, before that, the title was explained to me, I was waiting for a nine-tailed cat to show up on screen. Uh, so you can imagine my relief when I was when I was uh, told basically by the cast members uh, that such an atrocity would not be gracing the screen and I could I could finally rest easy and watch the movie without any apprehension. Yeah, yeah, good point. So and and hey. again, there are Argento movies, so the, you can't really take the title as what the movie is about. Yeah, yeah, true, very true. Anything else you want to talk about before we move on to our rating and recommendation with this puppy? Honestly, no, not not really much. I mean, oh, did we talk about the final death of the killer yet? No, we did not. I thought that was absolutely brutal. Uh, uh, to just to, to give you a little context, uh, our friend uh, Arno, the the blind the blind man, has the killer, who is just a random researcher, by the way, total total uh, out of left field kind of move. Uh, he has him at switchblade point. Uh, staff foo as as uh, Joe Bob would probably say, <laughs> and foo. yeah, exactly. That's what it would be. Cane knife foo, yeah. uh, heads roll, you know, whatever. But uh, then he throws him through a glass skylight. Uh, he falls down an elevator shaft. He grabs the elevator ropes and it burns his hands and cuts through his hands before he finally falls all the way to the top of an elevator and splats there. 
Uh, and then the movie ends immediately, which I thought was a great way to end the movie on Argento's part. We did, I don't think we needed any more. I think it was better to leave us on an intention-grabbing uh, moment than to let the movie drag out and like. Oh, I agree. I thought it was. Day. I thought it was a strong ending. Yeah. It kind of um, reminded me of The Hills Have Eyes. If if I'm not, uh, you they, know. They, yeah. The the redone ending instead of the original and Craven envisioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah uh, so that's pretty much all I have to say. I'm I'm ready to give my overall thoughts just to sum up my review and give my rating and review. Go for it. All right. So this is no surprise. I mean, it's not the best of Argento's work, but I thought there was great cinematography and editing. I thought was really strong in this. Yep. Uh, especially in the kill scenes. I love uh, something that made the kill scenes so much more intense is is the the drama that the victims are portraying and the the calmness, the chilling calmness of the killer. We get the close up on his on the those stark yellow eyes, and they're just kind of very calm, which I thought was really really unsettling. I thought there was pretty great writing. There are some leaps in the plot, but the dialogue overall was really good. And really made you believe the characters. Good acting across the board. Not the best acting, but of course, it's and it's an Argento movie. He was not a, an actor's director. Uh, like I said, there's some leaps in logic, but again, Argento. Uh, and I think it's a good watch. It was an attention grabber, and I would give it a 7.5 out of 10, and I would say stream it on Shutter. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I rate it between a 7.5 and an 8. I call it a high-priority stream. As you said, you can find it on Shutter or Amazon Prime, I believe. So I would definitely say... Check it out. I don't think it's as strong as um, Four Flies on Gray Velvet. Uh, maybe not even Bird with a Crystal Plumage, but I still think it's strong, and it's definitely worth checking out. So before we reveal what is next, we do have a new Patreon episode up, right, on the uh, Universal Dracula films, which yes. was fun. So fun to record. We went way off topic but I know you guys love that anyways. Uh, it was entertaining all the way through. And I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that one of our patrons is now going to visit the entire Universal catalog because of that. Oh, bonus pod. really? Nice. Yeah, so, yeah, Trey was like, I definitely have got to go back and visit some of those Universal ones because I did not remember them. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that inspired that. And we both had fun watching those movies as controversial and as uh, opinion-splitting as they may be. <laughs> all righty. So... Uh, before we get to what we reveal, do you have any? Do you have an iTunes review to uh, to read, or I could certainly pull one up. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and reveal what we're doing next. While you go ahead and pull that up, awesome. um, we are going to be joined by one of our patreons, Trey Whetstone, to discuss yes. Dario Argento's. And I just go ahead and say this classic. Deep Red from 1975, which at least as as we're recording this is uh, still streaming on Shutter, so you can find it on there. So it's widely available. And if I remember um, the copy, the uh, screen, it, it's not it's not going to be the 4K Blu-ray, but it's still decent. It's still really good. And if you've never seen Deep Red, you definitely need to check it out before we discuss that with Trey Whetstone. Yes. So you got a review to read? I do. This is a five-star review, and you can leave a review in iTunes uh, or whatever your, your podcast streaming thing is, Podbean or whatever. Uh, we appreciate it. But this one is from Adam Kahn, five-star review. One of the very best, he says. I've listened to a lot of horror-related podcasts over the past several years, uh, but this one is definitely something special. Getting to hear Matt and Jackson talk about these films is a genuine treat. They love horror movies, and it shows. Their insights and observations are not only very well thought out, but extremely astute. 
but also extremely entertaining and engaging as well. You owe it to yourself to check these guys out. Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Adam. That was a very kind review. Uh, we love these reviews you guys are leaving us. You guys have supported us so much, and uh, keep them up. Absolutely. Thank you, Adam. Very kind. And we want to once again thank our Patreons. You can join for as little as $2.50 a month. It will uh, help put an aspiring horror filmmaker through school, folks. So That's right. And uh, different levels of giving give you different benefits, including picking episodes, picking Patreon subjects, or even being on the show. And we will even mm-hmm. have a giveaway for our Patreons uh, come Halloween time. So yes, wait can't wait for that. that is, but uh, looking for something special. You can find us, as always, at uh, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com or over on Twitter as Father and Son Horror. We also have an Instagram page and a closed Facebook group where I, I usually post uh, during the week. So where can they find you online, buddy? Well, on Twitter, you can find me at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. I'm also on Letterboxd at Kane Hero. I've been watching a lot of movies this month, so if you want to see those reviews, uh, you can check me out there. I've also got a YouTube channel, which is, as always, floating around the internet. I can't stop it. Please make it stop. It's too fast. <laughs> uh, we're not going to stop you, buddy. So... Uh, they can find me uh, as Pastor Matt R on Twitter and Letterboxd. So, with that being said, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, and remember to always give your milk pyramids a taste test. <laughs> All right, gross. <laughs> Until next time, remember the family that watches horror together slays together. See you next time.